Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, folks. Appreciate you dialing in. We've got some people that caught this announcement and are loaded in here. I know a lot of you are getting ready to enjoy a very good 4th of July. I'm praying that you all have a wonderful 4th of July, safe and sane, as they say, relaxing, enjoying family and friends. We have one of one thing I do is enjoy my friends, and I have a really special friendship with a guy that I am going to have as my guest today, and very excited about that. His name is Logan Motoshami. Logan, I ran across a number of you. Know, I guess it's been several years ago now. I ran across some posts that he had been out there posting, which is a whole other topic I want to get into. Just touch on briefly, but he is an avid social media user, and he just posts his thoughts about the economy. And then he'd go out and challenge this one and that one about different things that they were putting forth as what he thought was needed to be at least another point of view. He did it very respectfully, but it worked all the way up to he's challenging different things that are being said by Nick Timoros of the Wall Street Journal, uh, Diane at CNBC, the the gal that does all the radio stuff, uh, you know, just really started challenging people and started looking at things. And he did it, and he started through social media, Twitter. And, like, at one point in time, he had a Twitter war going between David Stevens and, uh, and then also Nick Timoros at the Wall Street Journal. It was really fun to see how we as individuals, we think we can't make a difference. It's amazing when you weigh in with intelligent comments. Now, if you're going to weigh in, it better be intelligent. It better be well thought out. And that's what Logan is with a lot of his thoughts. So he's a financial blogger. He has uh, been, been, been Zaga. I think I think I say that right, Logan. You'll correct me on that in a minute. Uh, financial. He's a financial blogger. He is a senior manager for a family business, a AMC Lending Group, there in uh, the Southern California area. But we're just honored to have Logan Motoshami back on the broadcast, and we're going to be discussing about economic forecasts and basically an overall economic update of what's going out on out there in the market. So, we're on, first of all, happy Fourth of July. Good to have you with us. Logan, good to have you back on the broadcast. It's good to be here. Let's get into talking about some of the things. Uh, I'm going to share this. You know, I, I heard one thing I liked a long time ago. Confession is good for the soul, but it can be heck on the reputation at times. And so uh, what I did is I went on national television. I was on Cavuto making some statements about what I thought we might see. This might be the high water market related to housing. It was a week ago this last Monday. I did one a broadcast Monday, and then I did another one the week before. And then, of course, after the fact, I go, hey, Logan, I said these things. What do you think? And he immediately went into challenging some of the things that I said. And I go on, make a note note to self. <laughs> Get a hold of Logan before you go on national television. And then also encouraging them to pick up on Logan and try to get him on more of these shows. But what the most important part, Logan, is I want to start off by talking about housing, your perspective on housing. We saw existing home sales numbers come in at the strongest levels in, well, how many years is it, it in uh, a number of years, since I think May of 2013 or even before that. Not sure, I bet it was a very strong existing home sales number. We see ho- new home sales numbers, good. 
But this week, we saw pending home sales number come in substantially below the previous month, yet it was a positive number. So let's start off on the housing topic. What are your thoughts? Where are we headed? Well, in regards to housing economics, we always have to look at housing in a bigger context. And, you know, in my 2015 housing prediction article, I was talking about primarily we have such a low bar this year when we look at adjusting to population, adjusting to the uh, timing of the economic cycle, which is going into year seven. Interest rates are still low. So we're going to be beating the numbers just out of sheer population growth. So in regards to that, we're going to see year-over-year growth on all housing metrics. But in context, in bigger economics, this entire housing cycle has been a boom for renting demand. It's been a very strong inflation since April of 2012. So whatever these numbers are, you have to take a step back and take a look and, and realize the fact is it's a very soft cycle. And we just don't have to Explain what you mean by a soft cycle. You've, you've said those words before. I've heard you and I talk about those. But for the listeners that may not understand, that's so why I break down some of your points a little bit. If you apologize for interrupting you there. But what, is, what do you mean by a soft cycle? The mortgage demand in this economic cycle has been very weak. It has been trending really at a 70% mortgage buying market, which traditionally for existing home sales, it's been 90%. So one of the mm-hmm. points I always make to people uh, that if you actually take the extra percentage of cash buyers out of the equation, not all of them, just the extra historical percentage, right. our real net demand on housing for existing home sales, not for new homes, is roughly just slightly above the Great Recession load. So we just don't have enough economic firepower. And that's been my thesis since day one, writing at LoganMotorShami.com. It's just that uh, it's a very simple thesis. We simply don't have enough qualified home buyers in this cycle uh, to have a real housing recovery. And that's going to last all the way throughout. Uh, I always believe years 2020 to 2024 will be much better for housing. But I think uh, in a headline sensationalism world we live in, uh, there's a lack of discipline in reading or, or, or trying to look at housing economics. And really, that, the, that was the right generational call for this cycle. Things are going to get better down the line when uh, demographics are better, incomes are better, and assets are better. But for this cycle, we just don't have that kind of firepower. So if you really took the cash buyers out of the equation, real net right. debt is really at great recession lows. I think you pointed out, or it was in the Case-Shiller report, when uh, some of these numbers that came out is that normally first-time home buyers make up 40% of the market. We've seen an inordinate number of cash buyers. That is seeming to fall, be falling. But we do see that the first-time home buyers is down around 30%. Now, we did see it's hardly a spike, but we saw a 2% increase on these latest existing home sales numbers. While it's encouraging, it's still 8% off from what the norm is and 40 uh, at 40% of all homes. Uh, any comments to those statistics, the first-time home buyer? love to get your analysis. Here's the thing with the first-time home buyer. You know, before the numbers came out with the existing home sales, I was looking for $5.35 million, and it came right into that. And But when you read the report, the irony is that people were talking about, wow, the first-time home buyers are coming back. It's at 32%. We've gotten to a point to where a historical low for first-time home buyers is now a positive point. 
So I, that's why I always say look at it as context. And I actually my, I wrote a recent article about the existing home sales breaking it down. There's good there's good uh, there's a good trend line in those numbers. The cash buyer is falling. That's a good thing. Yes. That's a good thing for America. It that's is. a good thing for everybody because it makes it a more real market. Uh, it, right. Whatever implication it has in the future, it's still better that we have a housing cycle that's related more to American mainstream economics and not the you know economics of people who have the ability to buy homes with cash and rent them out or flip them or whatever in that sense. And that number has now dropped under 30% for six months. That's a trend. You know, I don't like these kind of these one-off. This happens for one month. That happens for one up. You want to see trends. Yeah, you got to look at the system. Yeah. yeah. And, what, and so, what trends? Actually, I mean, you look over six months. Is it six month type of things you look at? What's the the period of time that you establish as a trend in your? I mean, I, I like to see a six to fourteen month trend. So, okay. you know, when we get to a six month trend, we kind of we realize there's something going on here. So, the cash buyer is under thirty percent for the first time. Every single month, I'm going off the NAR numbers. I know there's other other uh, people that have higher numbers than that, but that is a legitimate trend. That means that mortgage buyers are coming back, cash buyers are falling out. Uh, that's what we want to see. We would like to have seen that years ago, but we just don't have that kind of uh, economic firepower. So I think that that is a that is a legitimate positive thing that sales are growing slightly, but. They're not being held up so much by cash buyers. So I find that to be very positive. But then when you look at the other indicators, first-time home buyers at 32%, just for that one month, we're still trending at 30%, right. looking at the lowest levels ever recorded. And then you look at the total sales numbers. When you adjust it to population, we're looking to be about 10 to 13% below the year 2000 level. You know, Back then, interest rates were at 80% or 8%. Uh, 8%. We had 40 yeah, 40, 40 million less Americans back then. We had 17 million less working Americans. So when you start looking at it in that light, boy, it's really soft. You know, we're headline going to be closing really at the year 2000 level. It's really interesting that you're comparing to decades and looking at the numbers, and but also not just getting locked on decade numbers per se, but you're adding in the additional workers and using it as a percentage of the additional workforce that's there, as well as just all the dynamics that go into it, that that go into the market. Let's talk a little bit about home price appreciation. We've seen it at double-digit numbers. That is not healthy. I don't think that's sustainable. Uh, we had a hole to dig out of, and we've come back to that. Cash buyers help that. In, you know, a lot of institutional buyers buying homes up at real low prices and turning them into rentals created a a sudden spike, or not a spike. Well, I guess you could call it ten double digits because should be considered a spike. Where now it looks like we're returning to more normal numbers in the four percent range, and for decades we see the three four percent range as really the norm. And what was really creating a sustainable, long-term, healthy housing industry? That's been my view. I'd love to get your thoughts on what should be moving forward a realistic, a realistic expectation for home price appreciation. You know, home prices, a primary factor of that is inventory. And, yeah. you know, in, when, once inventory breaks under six months, you know, you really have pricing power again in, in, in the cycle. The one thing, if people actually took a look, this century, the only time we've had over six months, annually months inventory, is when the housing bust happened. We actually never had even over five months of inventory from 1999 to 2005. 
So when people say, well, we have a lack of inventory, well, we have a lack of inventory. We didn't have this issue back, you know, from 99 to 2005 because we had a lot of uh, fake demand. But the demographics were good back then. So home prices are going to keep on rising. The point I try to make with people is that we have to be careful because people aren't listing their homes like they should. Um, that's, right. I think, one of the mistakes people have made in the past. They assumed, you know, you'd get a lot more people. But if you run the affordability index in this country, you need about 20% down. So uh, if somebody selling a house to move up, at least not move down, needs about 28 to 33% equity in their house. That right there is, you know, a factor to why home prices might keep on – have legs to keep on going out because unless you get – supply in there. You're not going to get distressed supply until the next recession happens. The supply is just going to be light because you really need a lot of equity to move up. So unless you're moving down, which, you know, some baby boomers might be able to, but in that sense, inventory is going to stay low. It gives the market some pricing power. But I've always said this. I've been very consistent. The price gains from April of 2012 is a disconnect to Main Street America. But for the rich, it doesn't matter. You know, low-end homes, have been uh, going much higher than uh, upper-end homes because those have been the cash buyers. So there's no correlation to Main Street economics in that light. So this is one of the problems why first-time home buyers don't have a lot of uh, 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 buying uh, capacity in terms of the homes they want to buy because, you know, you just had a, sh- a shoot-up in prices. So it's a disconnect, you know, but if we're looking at 2 to 4% home price growth, keep an eye on inventory. When inventory starts starts the year over six six months, then you probably got you know uh, some pricing a pricing battle in that regard. So keep an eye on national inventory. If you if you're looking for prices to cool down a lot, you still need over six months of supply, and we don't have that yet. Yeah, and that's that. So you're predicting that we're going to continue to see pretty healthy price appreciation in because of the inventory issues then. Yeah, I mean, I, I see price gains this year. I see price gains next year just because inventory is low. The cycle, we're, we're not creating any new distressed uh, homes. We're still working off the housing bubble years. Even if these HELOC loans recast, it's still it's still nothing to create a downturn in prices just because inventory is low. I think that was, I think that was one of the mistakes. A lot of people, bearish people, who've been saying that home prices need to go down, it's, it's very hard for home prices to drop. Uh, when inventory is so low. The this, areas yeah. that are probably I, at a risk are some of these areas that were up 40, 50 percent. Uh, yeah. California is always, uh, you know, in that situation. Where Boom bust cycles, yes. You, uh, you list you list something and then it's not coming. Um, so those areas might see some year-to-year declines but uh, in some areas. But nationally, we just don't have enough inventory to create a downward pressure, and there's no recession coming, no job loss recession to create distress uh, uh, homes on That's the That's encouraging. That's one of the areas I want to get to jobs, and we'll do that here in just a minute. But and we really want to just kind of put a bow around the housing picture, price appreciation, with this question. What do you think is a realistic expectation for price, home price appreciation? Well, 1% to 4% was my, my look for this year, and I probably want to keep that. Uh, uh, going for a while until we see inventory over six months, until we see um, maybe the economic cycle weakening to where unemployment claims start rising and some people start uh, losing their jobs. So 
there's there's enough legs there. It's nothing great anymore, you know, and that's to me yeah. that's healthy. That's a good thing. The double digits. So you're saying double digits are out. We're not going to see double digit price appreciation. Yeah, I, I, what, I don't believe. I, I think this year we're going to end up maybe four to six percent when it's all said and done. Yeah. Um, that's 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 still a little hot, but you know, it, the the double digit. Uh, Price nationally, it's, it's probably we're not going to see right. that. I think 2000, 2013 was the peak to me for uh, home price appreciations on a national level. I think that's that's going to stick. So when you look at um, the, the interest rates, which is going to be a big driver, I mean, uh, of of the volume. Although we've seen, if interest rates go up, spike up, then which I don't think is going to happen. But I want to get your thoughts on that. But if that were to happen, then obviously volumes are going to drop. Home price appreciation could be impacted. I mean, the whole housing market will be impacted by a sudden spike in rights rates. And I'm talking about something greater than a half a percent. And God forbid what the Fed's, you know, uh, 10 of the 17 members said that we need to have two rate hikes this year. Uh, you know, uh, what is a realistic expectation? Is a lot of people, I'm more people I'm talking to say that the Feds are going to talk about it, but they're not going to end up doing it this year because there's just enough concern out there that they don't want to mess up what we have and what you know with whatever thing we have called a recovery. <laughs> I quite I don't even, I have trouble using those words when you look at all the fundamental issues across the board. But where do you see interest rates going? Can the Feds afford to raise rates? You know this this conversation has to be broadened out a lot. Um, you know my my prediction on the ten year note, you know for 2015 was that we were going to be in a range of 160 to 304, that we were going to hit the 160 level and then move all the way back up to 304. If we saw what happened this year, uh, that's kind of what happened. We got all the way down to 1.64 which is you're looking at 35 to 3.625 in interest rates. And then I thought from that point we'd work our way back up to 3, 3% on the 10-year, which is going to be 4.375, uh, 4.5%. Right now we're on track to, to get there. I don't think that changes, you know, the, the dynamics of housing in a big, big form. What we saw in 2003 um, was something that I actually warned about on May 7, 2003, that once the second hand of housing inflation will come, it'll impact demand. And exactly right on cue from that article, we saw that. But if you look at what happened, sales, you know, kind of stayed flat. Uh, home prices kept on going up. Uh, it, 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 it'll impact the marginal demand, but the big picture, it doesn't really move the needle for existing homes. For the new home sales market, we saw what it did. Uh, yes. Uh, but the economic cycle itself is starting to take over, where you just have more dual-income people. Uh, so even with the rate spike in 2013, even with the sales you know, being impacted, we didn't see really that much change in prices. Prices kept on going up. I, you know, I'm not a big rate person in terms of – I think the economic cycle itself is more powerful than interest rates. We saw interest rates go down, and it really didn't uh, expand the rate. Yeah, it didn't help curve. anything. Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, in 20, 2014, that was, that was the main thesis. Rates went lower. Uh, inventory was up. Sales were negative year over year for existing homes. And new home sales, which, which to me was remarkable, barely was up 2%. So even if you get 20% sales growth in new home sales this year, you're still 25% below what people were calling for in 2012, 2013, 2014. So, 
You just don't have the firepower. Um, and I, the new home sales market is different just because they're building bigger homes and homes are so expensive. Even adjusting to inflation, they're uh, above the 2006 peak. They just can't get enough people to buy like they thought they would. The housing nirvana call of 2013 never happened. But for existing yeah. home sales, it's, yes. it, it, it's just it'll, it's a marginal move. It's not going to change the needle that much either way. So even if rates go up to 4.5%, some people will be impacted. But the rate of change of the big numbers, it's just it's, it's not going to be that big. So these people are going to what? buy homes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Oh, yeah. the, I mean, these people are going to buy homes no matter what. People, yeah. This notion that a spike in interest rates will bring sideline buyers, it, it's, it's kind of funny to me. Housing is a process. It isn't something that you just get up in the morning, you read the paper and go, honey, you know, mortgage rates went up to four and a quarter. I think we should buy. No, this is this is a process that takes years, you know, and, you know, in 2015, it's the year to buy. You know, you probably were thinking about it in 2012, 2013 or 2014. So uh, whatever happens with the interest rates, it might change the marginal demand curve. But even in 2013, home Sales were still roughly uh, almost five million. New home sales stayed the same. There wasn't any tremendous downturn, and prices kept on going up. So, always remember, inventory is key, especially in a low-rate environment, especially in a high-cash environment. That matters more than than the interest rate curve. When interest rates get up to maybe five and a half, five point eight seven five, then you, you you might have. To me, five point eight seven five is real. You know, boy, you really need dual income. Uh, uh, at that stage, yeah. but you might change it marginally. But you know, it's it's you're still going to have five to five point two million existing home sales this year. This is uh, it, another factor leading into home sales is um, job job picture generally in number of jobs, but then the biggest part of it is income growth or wage growth. So let's move over to the topic of where you see jobs and wage growth. You know, with, with housing, um, housing to to own, um, the two percent year over year wage growth to me isn't a, a a big factor. It's it's really how much dual income factor we have in the housing cycles. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I didn't think we we're going to have a booming demand curve is that we're not going to have a, a lot of young people with dual incomes who are married having kids to be buying homes in this cycle. Um, I think we talked about this last time. The the model for housing economics is the young people have to rent, then they have to start dating, then they have to start mating, and then they have to get married, and then usually three and a half to six years after marriage, they tend to buy. That process was delayed in the Great Recession. We're starting right. to kick that back up again. Birth rates are coming back up. These are good things, but I think that's something down the line. 2% wage growth. You know, for somebody looking to buy a house, that principal interest tax insurance inflation for housing is going to always oversee that. So the process of housing gets, you know, it, it's a long period. So you need more young people getting married, about to have kids with two incomes. That'll be a more powerful wage inflation story than, let's say, wage growth goes up to 2.5% year over year, or real wages is really at 3%. You, you need more firepower. To own homes, renting is the problem for I think for a lot of people. We have we have 
rent inflation above wage growth for a while now. And I think that's the housing inflation story that still doesn't get enough coverage because it's been a renting cycle. Uh, that's when that's the, really the cost of shelter, which the problem has been at. What's wrong with the analysis? You look at what the dialogue and the analysis is a lot of the things you're going about and respectfully, and I love how you do that, Logan. You you go and respectfully challenge things, but you boldly do it. So there's a respect, yet there's a boldness about it. Some people ruffle some, you ruffle some feathers with that. But what's wrong with the analysis and the dialogue that's going on in the nation about housing, the mortgage finance system we have? What What's wrong with it? I think there's two main things that we, at least I've had an issue with. Number one, getting information from the media might not be the best source because a lot of people who are who <laughs> now are that's going a big four one one as my I, daughter says. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people who are going on there are talking their book, you know. And, and I make this claim, and I and I and I and I always use this. People always say I, I kind of pick on Ivy Zellman, but Ivy Zellman's a very smart person. This is this is someone smart, who knows yeah. her. Yeah, this is someone who knows housing. And why did she talk about housing within Nirvana? Well, because you know their family runs a hedge fund where it's primarily to invest in housing. So sometimes the analysis you <laughs> might hear on TV from people in the industry are talking their books. Like you're always going to hear home prices are not too high to buy from the NAR, but they're also yes. going to say. They're also going to say that home prices need to cool down as well. There's a conflict of interest. And right. I understand that. Yes. I get it. I get it. If you, if you work for Lennar or you work for a builder and you go on TV, you're, you're going to say, hey, lending's tight. We need more people to buy homes because that's how you make money. It's very hard to get genuine analytical work from people that are in the industry because that's, that's their industry. I'm not saying they're paid to say it, but – they're, no, they have an agenda. No, which but is you're, you're you know, subliminal or otherwise. I remember a lot of my comments I've said on television, national television. You know, I asked myself honestly, driving away from the studio and thinking about my remarks. I mean, how much is it influenced by me being in the industry and having so many clients, and to a certain degree, my livelihood is dependent by. It. I, you know, I I honestly can say consciously, not at all. I am sharing with with people what I believe my convictions to be. But the fact that my convictions are wrapped around, you know, 43 years in an industry, it's it's something that you have to ask yourself. And that's why I value so much my dialogue with you, Logan. And I encourage anyone listening to this broadcast to read your blog. It's at Logan Motashami, and I'll spell that M-O-H-T-A-S-H-I-A-A-M-I. I did that. I blew that. Logan, L-O-G-A-N-M-O-H-T-A-S-H. H A M I dot com. You gotta read this stuff, folks, and you've gotta stay up on what's happening in these markets and you've gotta get multiple views. Uh one of our listeners just texted me and says, Does Logan have a podcast where he's sharing his thoughts on that? He says, I love your broadcast link and you cover a lot of great topics, but it's nice to go to a specific person like Logan and do a deep deep dive. I listen to podcasts on Saturday when I'm you know, supposedly kicking back, spend a lot of time in my office still with that, owning your own business. But I'm listening to podcasts if I'm outside working in the yard or just relaxing somewhere. I've got a podcast, a typical financial podcast or a spiritual podcast going on in my head. 
it refreshes me. It keeps me pers- on different perspectives. And when it comes to the financial podcast that I'm listening to, Logan, I, I like taking both sides and listening to both sides because it's so important that we hear these different views. So are you thinking about starting up your own podcast? You should. You know what? Uh, in time, I'll expand everything. You know, in terms of to, to answer that, that person's questions, you know, if you go to my website on the menu, uh, click you know, the interviews I've done with Bloomberg and, and other outlets, the podcasts are there. Uh, I always encourage people. I was speaking at the BNY Mellon Stock Conference last December with Bloomberg here in a, a Data Point, California, and I basically uh, was, you know, I have my own algorithm for, for housing economics, and I talked about how 82% of the people in California are priced out of housing once you take the cash buyers out of the equation and those making three times right. median income. Uh, uh, so I, that, that podcast and all the other podcasts I've had are on that website, but yeah, you know, when you can talk, I think it's, it's, it's more sophisticated. It's more educated. Um, we, you know, we were talking about David Stevens and Nick Tamiros, you know, just two days ago on Twitter, I'm, I, I'm always going to fight this tight lending myth to the, to the day I die. And I think if, if I was able to go on TV and take Lori Goodman, Mark Zandi, anybody from the Wall Street Journal, and have an open live debate on them on why tight lending is a myth, it would be such a crucifixion that <laughs> the, value, the value of their yeah. words would have to go down because you're asking people who have never worked in finance, who have never done a loan in their life, to be experts, to actually dictate some type of policy when they've never done it. And that, that, to me, that's, that's, that's a morally corrupt thing and i understand why they do it i just i don't believe in it i think it's a it's it's the slippery slope always starts with a whisper and when the wall street journal and mark zandy Lori goodman and harvard with their work and start saying lending is tight because we're not giving loans to people with 620 fico scores well i would say well people with 620 fico scores have high credit card debts that they can't pay off you're actually trying to obligate some kind of thesis that we need to find ways to to give people more debt when they can't pay their credit cards off? Is that what you're saying? They don't even understand what I'm even talking about. Why? Because they don't have a background in lending. All right. So I think, I think to me, if I knew this was happening. If you look at my work, I, I, I've been very consistent. We're not going to have an expanding mortgage buyer profile. But with that comes the whispers, comes the people who are going to cry about lending standards, who are going to say that this has nothing to do with economics or incomes or assets. This has to do with lending, that somehow people aren't getting homes even though they deserve it. It's, it's a long process, but we know the characters who are starting it right now. And, and as long as that continues, I will do what I can every single day to show them that they've been wrong. Well, I'm going to start giving you more voice. I want to start doing a lot more of these broadcasts. So that to to the individual that just tested me, I'm going to have Logan on. We're going to be doing more of these special broadcasts. I tell you, I look for people. I lock on to people that I think have a really good, healthy contrarian is one way you could look at it. I think it's a healthy counterpoint to the dialogue that's out there. I see flaws in the dialogue. I respect everyone that's out there. and uh, I, But I really, if you really are sincere and passionate about the truth, what's going on, you've got to get a hold of other people. So, again, let me give you that website, www.logan, L-O-G-A-N, Motoshami, M-O-H-T-A-S-H-A-M-I.com. Check it out. It's got some good stuff in there. 
And I know you're always good about posting our interviews up there in there as well, so I appreciate that. Um, let's talk about we've, – we've talked as we – I look at the time we have, and it's, it's a weekend. I want to respect your time. But for the remaining part of the broadcast, I really want to focus in on what you're paying attention to. I've been asking specific questions about housing, interest rates, a lot of things that are going into the housing finance system. Oh, someone just texted me says, could, before you go there, Dave, could you go into the international scene? I'd love to get Logan's thoughts about Greece. We know that the other countries, and he didn't put this in this text, but you know, what's the big, what's the impact of it? We we know Greece, what's going on there? That's really a template or a, a foreshadowing of what could happen and the policy the EU is going to have towards its other countries that are deep in debt. Um, seems like primarily to Germany, but anyway, I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, well, if you look at what's happened in the bond market and the interbank lending uh, market, Greece is, has, the biggest problem Greece has is that they're kind of, they've been singled out by the bond market all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at the bond market of Portugal, Spain, uh, and all the other European countries, this is a Greek story only. And then now that it's only a Greek story, you don't have the, the fear that we saw back in 2012 when Italians and Spain debt was running 6%, 7%. It's only a Greece story, and that's kind of their problem because there is no, there's no big um, uh, issue in terms of Europe falling apart or, or even yeah. the euro even. It, this is, and if you just, the bond market will tell you the truth. They do not believe there is contagion risk. And because they do not believe there's a contagion risk, you don't see, you know, the massive drop in yields. You know, we have these one or two days where yields come down because the Greeks are doing their voting process right now. But if you look at how the bond market is acting, it, this entire time, this last six months, it's just kind of been a Greece event, you know. So I, yes. I don't see that as a I, – I don't see Spain or Portugal following Greece. You know, Greeks Good. can't get money as much as they want from their banks. Greece is now, you know, completely in limbo. So I think this is a Greek situation. Uh, um, so whatever happens, the bond market has properly priced in. It's not that big of a risk. The the lending is not between European banks and Greece anymore. The IMF, the ECB, you know, all those are the people that are really on the hook. So whatever happens with Greece it's just going to be minor just because the bond market has priced no real risk of Spain or, or uh, Portugal uh, following them. So it's got another it, question I, from I, one I, of our, I don't even think it's going to come down. I don't think yields are going to come back down, whatever, ha- even if the yeah, worst but, case situation happens with Greece. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm with that opinion too. If we see one of the other bigger nations default, then maybe, you know, we could see it differently, but again, I think if, if, if you're Spain and Portugal and you're looking at what's happening in Greece, is that what you really want to be? You know, having yeah. your banks shut down, having you know uh, uh, people yep. start canceling trips. I mean, it's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is not good for Greece under any circumstance, but it, there is a broader impact across the financial markets. Been, you know, I don't want to minimize the what's going on in Greece and the difficulties they're facing and will be facing as a result of this. But the reality is it's not going to have broad, far-reaching impacts in the reality. And of that's part of the problem you, they have is that, you know, 2012, everybody was in pro, everyone had issues and, um, you know, they, yeah. they, they got a deal. But it's just, it, it, you know, to me, I understand why they don't want to leave the euro because, you know, if they have their own currency, you're looking at inflation. If you look at what they import, you know, you know that's that's a country that still relies on importing. So 
Um, it's it's just it's always going to be tough. But then if you look at Greece through the history of Greece since 1800, they've been restructuring their debt and defaulting on their debt more than any other country in yeah. civilization of Earth. Yeah, fix the systemic issues there, Grace, and then. Uh, but uh, as far as it lays in there, um, it's, it's not going to have that big impact. Is what you're saying, and I agree with you. No. Uh, someone just wrote me this and asked me this. It sounds like Logan is more of a fundamental ana- analyst rather than a momentum an- analyst. How would you comment to that? Long-term trends matter more than short-term, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, short-term blips up and down. Uh, the if you look at housing, it's big, you know. So whatever short term yes. moves you get up or down, it's still the trajectory is big. And you know, we're we are fighting over for three years. We're going to be between 5.0 to 4.93 million to 5.2 million home sales for existing home sales. Whether rates are up or down, that's the trend. Uh, a few few home people, might, a few buyers might not buy because rates are at four and a quarter, or some people will. It's regardless. Academics are bigger trend theories, so they they mean more than anything short term. Short term is great for TV, for Twitter, for everything. I I, I, right. I completely understand that, but economics is bigger. Bigger things matter. Um, uh, you know, there are some people who thought we we're going to go into a recession. You know, the, the I always I always make fun yeah. of people that as soon as QE is ended, the U.S. is going to collapse, and you know we're going to a what, nothing's happening. <laughs> you know, nothing. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's you know as long as the ten year is low. Some of these perma bears is actually they they don't even perma really bears. Their, I like that term. Yeah, they don't understand yeah. their own thesis. They thought that when QE and <laughs> rates are going to spike up, but if you actually looked at the cycle, every time QE ended, yields went down. Every single time when QE ended, yields went down. It's long, we are a consumer-based economy. The cost of the debt means a lot to us. You know, this is why you, you wait for the recession to happen after the Fed starts hiking rates, not before they even started the rate, first rate hike. So the economic cycle might be very low. I mean, I've always been, if you look at my GDP predictions, I've been 2 to 2.5%. I have never had a three-handle on any of my uh, uh, GDP predictions because of globalization, technology, debt, demographics. We don't have the capacity to really have a 3% solid e- economy, not until years 2020 to 2024. So it's just a very well, mild, slow-growth economic cycle. How much of this goes into demographics? Harry S. Dent, which is a, you know, guy gathered garnered a lot of followers when he wrote the you know his some of his uh, books early in the 80s, predicting some of the things and the whole cycle. He was right for a while, but he's been wrong, dead wrong in some of the stuff, and it's because of Fed monetary policy that came in and has stimulated the economy. But for those that yeah, but that those dates, by the way. It, was it 2024? Is what you're saying somewhere or that, that time? Well, the, you Is know, that the time frame you say? You know, here's you know the the the. If there's one thing I always want to tell people is demographics really matter, and we're starting to uh, grow our prime age working force. You know, young people spend more than old people. You know, I try to keep it as simple as I can. When we get more young people into the workforce. They're going to be buying cars. They'll be uh, buying furniture. They'll be buying homes. In a consumption-based economy, that matters. Uh, the demographics, you know, weren't that great in this cycle. Uh, that's that that goes right into housing. It, it just it just astounds me that this 
was never brought up five, six years ago, that nobody ever thought, well, maybe the young people won't be buying this cycle because people aren't getting married at 23 and buying a house at 25. You know, you're going to get people 28 to 33 buying homes. Our biggest age group aren't the boomers, 17 to 29. Age 23, 24, and 25 are the biggest in America. When they graduate college, when they get a job, when they, you know, find someone that they want to marry, the consumption level gets bigger and bigger. They start having kids at the consumption level. So that process looks a lot better in years 2020 to 2024. What I don't agree with Harry Dent, and it goes back to the media, is him coming on TV and talking about Dow 6000. For some reason, he's fascinated with the 6000 number. It's a nice round number. You know, 6000 sounds really good. 2010, Dow's going to 6000. 2013, the Dow's going to 6,000. 2014, the Dow's going to... He, he's got these predictions. We actually keep it up it. on a picture. And he's always wrong, but think about it. It doesn't matter because his followers will follow him always. Yes. He, if you're, he has good if you're stuff. selling books and, and you're doing that, and that's well, not yeah, to say that, that he has a... And, and, that, and that's the thing, is that is that uh, some people, they, they are great sales. I'm a horrible salesman. I could never do this. If I ever said the Dow was going to 6,000 and it didn't, I would hide in a cave and these people just come out and go, they show bravado. <laughs> you got a soul. We're going to what? So yeah. I don't know. It's just, I, I, I understand that aspect because that sells. Yellow journalism sells and people love doom and gloops. I'm telling you, it is, it is fascinating. I do this test case on my own Facebook page just to see. So, the demographics really matter, and, and, and that is a, a great point he always makes. You know, so yes. uh, they're great things. But I think that part of his analysis has got some credibility, but I think there's some other flaws that gets him to a, has gotten on well, a, a wrong conclusion. Saying, well, saying the market's going to crash is a great marketing tool, I'm telling you. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just wonderful. You're going to have people join up your newsletter or whatever. You know, the Mark Faber, Mr. Doom and Gloom, yes. you know, think about it. Six years of saying that we're going to crash, we're going to crash. I understand that. But in terms of actually getting some really analytical work, you know, that, that might not be it. Because if, you, if you're talking about Dow 6000, you're really saying an economic collapse, that unemployment claims are going to rise, retail sales are going to go tremendously negative, industrial production fell. We had the crash. It happened in oil. Prices, you know, collapsed. Right. They made a little bounce back. We had 250,000 jobs laid off, and unemployment claims are still low because it's not that big of a worker. So it impacted definitely. We see the numbers. The strong dollar is impacting American economics, you know. So that, that is a legit yes. thing. But in terms of it creating a, a downward spiral, a, a calamity where we, we would have the Dow go down to 6,000. You would need unemployment claims to spike up. You need people to be laying off. It's just, it's just not it, you know. So, so all, we've got a couple people. Them. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I understand that, and and I think some of it is there. You know, if you're doing it deceitfully just to publish a book, or if you're doing it sincerely and just sincerely wrong. Uh, you know, how do you publish repeating books on that hey, same it, thing? But it, I understand it, that it's what we talked about earlier. It's the media. It's it's money. It's you know you got to get you know I, I that I I I will never knock people for being great salesmen. That's that's what they do. You're right. You know. So yeah. Well, let's talk about who. Several people wrote me here and said, "Who does Logan respect out there? Who do you follow?" And 
And I wrote back, said he's very independent. I don't know that he follows anyone per se, but he does his own analysis, and I think that's what ultimately the under the the part of the story that really needs to be said. Everyone needs to do their own thinking, and that's what I think you do very well. But of the ones you do listen to, read about, who's on your radar screen is having more plausible, more believable to you, where you have a tendency to line more with? You know what I. I listen to everyone. That's that's listening to somebody is I, I think is healthy. I listen to people that I would always disagree with because I think that's a good you know uh, uh, test for you. I only follow numbers, um, math, facts, and data. That's kind of my my thing. That's all that matters to me. And I have to be able to take the numbers and create my own view. I'll listen to everybody, but I don't I don't subscribe to one person or give anybody any more clout than the other person it's all they're all just the same to me they're all an equation we just want to find out you know what i think the equation for economics is so there isn't one person that i would even recommend uh because i would recommend all of them you listen to everybody everybody's got their own view because the only way you're going to create your own view to have your own opinion is to listen to everybody and then you create your own self so i mean obviously you know i all I do is look at economic data and chart things up and everything. So I, I, I'm only going to follow what the numbers tell me. Um, you know, so, so there isn't anyone, you know, of, the, the, there's the usual people that everyone sees on TV. And I, I, yeah. I encourage everybody to listen to everyone because when you listen to everyone, you're going to develop your own opinion and you're going to, you're going to know who yes. you disagree with. So I wouldn't say there's one person that I listen to. I just look at data as for what it is. And I'll like listen to every single person out there, but there isn't one that I would actually, you know, I, I math facts. I like that math facts and data. As we wrap up this broadcast, give me what you're passionate about, what you're paying most attention to uh, when you're writing about the economy and all the things you're doing. Uh, answer that question. Then the last question is, how do you have time to do this? One of the guys is there obviously, I happen to know this originator who wrote me, just, he says, I'm so busy doing what he do. How could he do this? This is really good work. I love what, is, every time you have him on. So, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and working until 9 o'clock at night. The thing is, I love this stuff. I love it. I There, there yeah. is no way another person would do this. I don't have much free time during the day from 4 a.m. to 9 p.m. I mean, I go to the gym for about an hour, and pretty much after that, I am stuck in front of a computer uh, uh, taking in information. I think that's more suited for me. I could take in information and, you know, create an own view. That's just how I'm wired up. So uh, uh, big things for me is always look at trends of economics, so industrial production, retail sales, uh, real wages, unemployment claims. Unemployment claims are the best indicator for a business cycle. Economics revolve around business cycles. When the business cycle turns bad, unemployment claims will start rising. Profit margins come down. People will start laying people off. If there's one data point that you want to see, always keep an eye on unemployment claims because when that starts ticking up, especially where, wherever the rate cycle is, is Keep, that's the that's the number one data point that I would see because that whether now that might not be the greatest thing in talking about a, a, an economic cycle itself, 
but nothing could hide that people are going to start laying off jobs than unemployment claims. So keep an eye on that, especially if the four-week moving average goes above 323K without a one-time economic event. That, that's my red flag right there. So that's the main thing that I would look at. I had someone just wrote said, can you believe the numbers? Do you believe the numbers? It seems like when uh, when you have an independent group, supposedly independent group, well, I think that's the, the, the basis for the question uh, is, you know, are they truly independent in the, what they're doing these numbers? So you look at where the unemployment numbers are, and a lot of people challenge them. Now, those can be this conspiracy, conspiracy, conspiratory theorist, you know what I'm trying to say there, not, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. So these numbers, what you know, how much credibility do you give to them, Logan? Well, I've always said the same thing with the unemployment rate. Um, don't follow the unemployment rate so much in this cycle. Uh, you know, it was obviously dragged down for labor participation rate, but don't put so much emphasis on the labor participation rate. I think that's the most misunderstood economic data ever out there. Mm. Prime working prime working age labor participation rates are above 80%. That's the thing that matters. And that's lower than what it was, but employment to population is rising. It's very hard to to kind of explain, but you don't follow these people that say 93 million people are out of the workforce, okay? Look at people ages 25 to 54. That's the main part. 16 to 24 and 50, 55 to 75 that's not going to be the big thing for the economics. It's age 25 to 54. So, they're still at 80%. So unemployment rate is obviously dropping down faster because of the labor participation rate. So look at headline numbers. Okay, so if you get 220, 250, 280, that's good enough. Okay, that's good enough to keep the cycle moving. That's what you want to see. If you're starting trending back down to 170 to 190, that's not a good sign because we're, we're, we're later in the cycle here. So forget the unemployment rate. Don't even, don't even look at that. The U6 rate is falling. It's below the 30-year average right now. Uh, so that's if people like to use the U6 number for everything. Well, it's, it's right now it's below the 30-year average. So that's, that's a positive. The main thing is that the people that got hurt the most in this cycle were people who dropped out of high school, were people who didn't finish mm -hmm. college. If you look at the unemployment rates of people who didn't go to college or didn't uh, uh, finish high school, and you look at the U6 rate, there's where the damage was. You know, a, a college unemployment rate is at 2.5%. We need to start graduating more people, more more educated people. But well, that goes to the social program. We should start paying for everyone, so a college education should be the right of everybody, not the privilege of everybody. You so know, we're and, more and government. Even if they went, yeah, even if they went that right, I, I think we have to come to realization that what you what you choose as a degree matters. Okay, so if you're getting a liberal arts degree and you want to be making 150k a year, it's just not. You know, you know what I tell young people: finish finish school, finish high school, go to college, but but do a cost analysis of what you're doing. Uh, right. I would make it right. I would make it mandatory that every person who goes to college has to sit down with a counselor and says, "What's my degree? How much is it going to be worth? When I live in a certain area, how much am I getting paid?" I think you'll get a little bit more people going into math and science if they, well, you know what? I'm only going to be making twenty five thousand if I did this. You know, so. Educate yourself, give yourself a chance, or give your children a chance. 
show them, you know, show them that, hey, if you don't graduate high school, you're basically going to be near poverty for the most of your life. If you graduate high school, that's great. You're going to be a, your unemployment rate is under 5% even through the Great Recession. But know that what your degree is matters in terms of what you're going to get paid in. So you don't want to get stuck. You only live once in this life. Great so advice. Make, uh, make great advice as we get – I love this. A great advice as we go to ending this broadcast, Logan, because it's ultimately about the next generation as we work through it. And uh, I'm 64 years old. You're younger than me by a fair amount, but it's good to hear you talking about that because, you know, uh, I have two daughters in college, and that's exactly what we're talking to them about is, you know, one has wants to be a doctor, the ROI, and that investment is going to be substantially different than the one who's getting a family counseling degree and uh so it's it's going to be interesting at least we'll, we'll see but it's it's fun to have you on i love your analysis and uh if people want to get a hold of you logan uh what what would you prefer an email um what what and, and what type of person i mean i we, i don't want to load you, you know, up i know how busy I, I, you are so. i talk to people all the time you know and if and if you want to call me and just talk about economics that's fine 949-291-8293 you can call i don't mind talking to people my if you go to my website loganmotorshami.com you know my information is there if you go to my facebook page uh uh, uh my yes, personal facebook great. page i put i put i put every single report you could possibly imagine with a time given to me on a daily basis and you get some historical photos at night uh so it's kind of like a a news wire, but it's a news wire with everyone's information, not just the sole uh, company's information. So you get a kind of a broad look of economic data. You know, most people don't even understand the charts I put up, but for those who are interested, you know, it, it, it's there on a daily basis. Uh, it's, I'm looking at your Facebook page right now. Not only that, you got some great historical pictures in here that just go back. I don't, so you're a buff of of looking at history, and it's history wonderful. Here, I mean, so I just yeah, like. Yeah, it's just it's a really great sense, and I love what you do. I'm so honored and privileged to get to know you, Logan. I respect and encourage you to continue pressing on and moving forward in all the things you're doing. Uh, I want to give you more regular voice on this broadcast because I think you're so busy. It's uh, so I, I I'm responding to that one person who wrote, "Does he have a podcast?" Well. Uh, until he launches his own, and I'll help him, folks, I'm going to make sure that we have him on on a very regular basis. So stay tuned. I'll be doing this on a more regular basis. So, Logan, thank you so much. Hope you have a great Fourth of July. You so Enjoy your time. time. Have a wonderful <laughs> like be... holiday weekend. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being here with us, listeners. And thank you again, Logan, for tuning in, being here with us. Folks, we want to tell you on Monday we're going to be back with our regular broadcast, and we will be having uh, – we have Brian Fitzpatrick of – uh, Lone Logics on the broadcast. It's going to be a good broadcast. They just, if you saw the press release that just went out, he will be talking about some disruptive new technology they just announced. Looking forward to that broadcast. We're starting a whole series on Monday, this on the month of July. We'll be talking about innovation and uh, looking mostly at innovation within the tech from a technology standpoint, but also innovation through processes. Be very exciting series of broadcasts. Appreciate you being here with us. Tell others about the broadcast, and again, happy 4th of July. See you back here on Monday. This has been Lickin' on Lending. 
a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Elvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening.